Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, and you're listening to The Economist Asks. This week, we ask what's next for big tech in China. My guest is Kai-Fu Lee, CEO of Sinovation Ventures, a venture capital firm that focuses on tech startups in China. Before that, he worked in Silicon Valley and became head of Google in China. In 2016, Kai-Fu Lee joined Our World in Podcast to predict an upcoming boom for AI in China. And the Chinese tech giants have indeed been growing at a rapid pace, riding a wave of big data and AI innovation. But what happens next? And will China's tech giants soon start competing with the American beer moths for dominance worldwide? These questions still loom large, so we thought we'd ask Kaifu Li back and hear where he stands now. Kaifu, uh, welcome to the studio. Thank you. You've been laying out for us some thoughts there in your upcoming book, but they're also the basis of, of a very long career, both in Silicon Valley and in China. Can you characterize the difference between the mentality of Silicon Valley and internet entrepreneurs in China? Yes, I think that's changed dramatically. A lot of people still have the outdated view that Chinese companies are copycats, but we've gone way beyond that. I think uh, the Chinese companies started like as copycats, learned very quickly, and are now very innovative. I think the Chinese companies are much tougher in competition. They come up with much better business models that are very complex to replicate and very invulnerable from attacks and competition. I think Silicon Valley companies are generally uh, cordial and find ways to work with each other, stay off other people's work and frown upon copying, but they're not as strong and fierce in competing like wolves like the Chinese companies. So I think uh, there is a great underestimation and uh, about Chinese companies And I also think uh, when someday the two sets of companies compete, uh, the Chinese entrepreneurs on the average will eat the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs for lunch. So your message to that you worked at both uh, Google and Microsoft in the past. I did. And Apple. And Apple. Mm -hmm. You've got the the big three under your belt. They've got to watch out Chinese companies are coming for their business. But where? Globally? Uh, not not in the U.S. China is a large enough monolithic market, so it's a great uh, playing ground for the Chinese companies. For now, they're not they're not uh, very actively coming out of China yet. But we're seeing early examples of Chinese companies, uh, including Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, Didi, and so on, making plays for external expansion, not into the U.S., but into other countries. I think playing out maybe five to 10-year horizon, I see the U.S. leading English-speaking countries and Western Europe. And I see China obviously continuing to win in China. And then the two companies from the two countries will compete in everywhere else, Southeast Asia, Africa, South America, Islamic countries, Middle East, and so on. 
Given the different business models of these companies, which you've pointed to, the greater Chinese government involvement, particularly at the, at the top end of the companies, at the multi-billion level of companies, would they be competing to do the same thing? I mean, do you envisage Facebook losing market share outside the US directly to a Chinese company? Or is it much more the case that China is going to sort of provide a huge market in itself and keep Western companies out? I think U.S. and China have developed into two parallel universes. So the users use completely different things. They have different habits. And the companies occupy different spaces in the puzzle. A company going from the U.S. to China will be like going to an alternate universe and will simply fail. And the reverse will also be true. So I think uh, U.S. market will be for U.S. companies, China market for Chinese companies, and they will compete in other places. It sounds a little bit like you think Silicon Valley, where I think you also worked in the early part of your career, is nice, cordial was a word that you used, but not so hardworking and even a little bit weak at the edges, am I right, culturally? I, I do. I take a lot of our Chinese CEOs to visit Silicon Valley. They still see Silicon Valley as the Mecca. They are incredibly impressed at the bold, audacious, big goals companies have, the vision, mission orientation. But the other conclusion is that people don't work very hard at all. And the word lazy is often used uh, looking at parking lots that are uh, vacant by 7 or 8 o'clock. In Chinese entrepreneurial companies, it's customary to work 6 or 7 days a week, 12 hours a day. And even in larger companies like Tencent, if you visit uh, this giant company Tencent whose uh, valuation has exceeded Facebook, you will see taxis queuing up at 2 a.m. taking uh, hardworking engineers home when they really totally run out of steam working 12-hour days. You've got a cover story in front of you, the new titans, basically about uh, the big digital companies and what is going to happen to them and where their power should be constrained, how we might do that. What worries do you have about that in the Chinese sphere, given that we know that AI is progressing at a phenomenal rate, but it is also grafted onto a society which in many ways you know, sits there under a quite authoritarian political structure? I think the giants have too much power. Uh, actually, the academics get along everywhere. The Chinese academics, American, European academics, people share. AI scientists tend to be open. They're scientific. They use the same data to train and test. It's a very happy community that really means well for, the, for mankind. Uh, it is the giants. You mean in the U.S. or China or both? Uh, both and across each other. The Chinese scientists, American scientists are good friends. They share results. They use the same data for training. They compete, but they're also friends. I think it's uh, the AI community is a very constructive community that wants to make the world a better place. Having said that, the giants, uh, whether Chinese or American, have business interests. They want to grow their stock price. They want to keep trade secrets. They want to uh, make money. They don't care as much about uh, startups, creativity, competition, fairness. So they, I think, on the average throughout the world, that these American and Chinese titans need to be checked in some way so that we are able to maintain a uh, free competitive environment. And how could they be checked if the basic proposition, and I'm focusing on China now, is that you sacrifice privacy. There's an assumption, whether rightly or wrongly, that privacy matters less than better service, better customer service adaptation. 
how then do you check what could be the misuses of AI as it develops? I think misuses of AI and data is often pretty hard to track because you don't know what data is being collected. The data collected is based on the, the fair use of the products by these companies and then using it in other domains and using it in ways that um, may be hurting your privacy or hurting your financial a- aspects of your life without you knowing it is quite possible. So I think laws need to protect consumers. Uh, they're probably not AI laws or data laws. They're more like making sure things like fraud, things like that hurt your safety and security, and also sales of data are prevented. I think all countries should implement such things to protect consumers. I, I wish I had more ideas because I think the large companies need to be checked more because for them, they have a black box and a closed loop. We act, None of us know what's in it and what they use the data for. And I think we can begin with those things and uh, see what else can be done. The version of progress that I heard when I was uh, in, in China was that because the, the number of data points and the sophistication of, of AI is increasing so fast, there was almost an assumption that a lot of privacy was going to go by the board along the way, was going to be sacrificed. That would appear to be the case, wouldn't it, if if my face is recognised when I go for a transaction, if my voice can be recognised. How active, then, do you think that people like you, who are intellectuals, your thinkers in the sphere, not just doers, should be in respecting the rights of individuals here? I think it's inevitable that more and more people will have to trade privacy for convenience and at the very least trade privacy for security. And the question is, for those people who don't want to, who would prefer less convenience and gain, and keep their privacy, what are the mechanisms to do that? I think there are a lot of proposals coming out. I don't yet see a practical one. I think we have to just keep working on it and thinking about it. Let's put you in charge of this balance. And it's a tricky balance for entrepreneurs and government and regulators everywhere. It might have its own particular difficulties in China. But what would you like to see happen? I would like to see data shared, but more on an anonymized basis. For example, we might all want our health records to be owned by us and having to explicitly license them per on a per-use basis. But this is really a very poor efficacy because for a well-intended AI company that wants to have a better medical diagnosis, better cancer treatment, they really need the large data. So I'd like to see some mechanism that anonymizes my data so that the data is longitudinal and uh, well-labeled, but my name is removed. Now, some extremists would feel like, well, if you still have your race, age, and zip code, people can still reverse engineer. And I would tend to say, okay, you can't remove too much from the data because those data points may be very critical to your diagnosis. For example, maybe the air in your zip code is causing certain problems, and removing too much data will render AI useless. So I would argue for making the necessary efforts to anonymize the data, 
but not gives each person so much power to restrict each individual use of the data that will prevent progress. You talked about gladiators in an earlier presentation you did with some of our, our own AI specialists here at The Economist. And you talked about them really sort of competing with each other, but also governments getting a bit uneasy about this in a way, wanting to be in on the game. There is this phenomenon in which if you're a big enough company, the government will say, you know, we want to keep an eye on what you're doing. Is that uh, just a sign of a, a mighty, particularly a sort of view of, of the state in China? Or do you think it is likely that companies of this scale worldwide are going to have to give more account of themselves to governments? What's the healthy balance here? Well, I think companies would uh, like to have their independence. But I think countries, especially countries like US and China, uh, will want their Uh, companies to be more accountable to them locally. And that combined with a U.S.-China perception of competition will cause companies to essentially have to declare allegiance to the country of origin. And that is probably uh, going to impede the process of globalization. But that seems to be the path we're on worldwide. And it is the way it is. Last time I came to see you, which I think is a couple of years ago, and we went to your office in the little bit of Beijing that calls itself a sort of Beijing Silicon Valley. And we talked about, particularly about speech recognition. And of course, as a radio presenter, my main concern was, do I keep my job? And you have an analysis, I think, coming up in your book that quite a lot of jobs are going to be threatened and perhaps further up the scale. So, so joking aside, I'm going to issue a bit of, bit of a challenge. If I were to come to you or we'd get in touch with you after this and say, look, how close could you get to replicating the tones of voice, the ability to interview analytical nows, if such we have, and a bit of sense of humour? Do you think you're getting closer than a couple of years ago? Would you take on the bet that you could make a perhaps enhanced version of me? I think uh, AI will be able to make a very interesting version of you. It won't be as good as you, but it will have its own uh, uh, specialties. For example, speaking in your voice naturally, that appears we can do that. Uh, Creating a video avatar that looks like you, I think in a few years we can do that. I think having interesting questions and a meaningful dialogue uh, learned from previous Q&A by you and by other Um, I think we can do that. But having that uh, very deep question, asking the tricky questions, and uh, maybe having the humor, that's going to be difficult. So I think um, at a a journalist level, um, AI will start writing articles on uh, sports games, quarterly reports, fully replacing people to do that. Uh, But the deeper you get, the more human interaction you have, there will be a gap. The gap will, over time, narrow, but I think in our lifetimes, uh, we're still going to want to prefer to listen to uh, great uh, announcers and hosts and interviewers like yourself than robots. You said just the right thing. Thank you very much, Kai Fuli. <laughs> You're welcome. That's it for this week's Economist Asks. Do let us know what you think about the future of big tech and big data via email to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. For now, I'm the AI simulation pretending to be Anne McElvoy. Not really, at least not yet. Signing off. In London, this is The Economist. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.